And in case you haven't had a chance yet to, to see, we actually uh, have just posted all the sermons that are going to go all the way back to December of last year, all the way through today. Um, there's, I put this, the link for it in your bulletin. Uh, but also if you go to our church website, at the very bottom of it, there's a button that says sermons. And if you click on it, it'll take you where you can go back and listen to past sermons. And so we're going to try to keep that updated as, as soon as we do one on Sunday. I'm hoping by Monday we have it uploaded. All right, so, so the questions that we have, um, they're gonna, we're going to go over a bunch of different things. I would encourage you, if you have a pen and paper, uh, there's going to be a lot of verses that I say. Uh, we're not going to have time to flip to them all, so if you want to write them down, you can look at them uh, maybe at a later time. But these are four questions that uh, have been posed to me over the past, and uh, I wanted to just spend some time this morning and, and us examine those questions and and see if we can't bring some clarity to them. The first question that I want to look at is really kind of a deep question, and it's, who is the Holy Spirit? I don't know if you've ever pondered that question. Um, if I were to say to you right now, tell me about God, you could clearly tell me about the Father, you could clearly tell me about Jesus, but you might struggle a little bit trying to explain who the Holy Spirit is, what His role is, why does he do what he does? Um, we have some misconceptions of who he is. For some people, the Holy Spirit is this mystical force that does things that we don't really understand, but we know that he's there. Um, for some, he's the impersonal part of God that we don't necessarily have a relationship with, but he's there. Uh, and then for others, he is something that we know we love and cherish, but we don't really know all the intricacies of who he is. And so... I want to spend some time talking about him first and, and who he is and, and why. Um, so to examine the question, we have to ask first, how does the Bible portray who the Holy Spirit is? First, I want you to clearly see that the Holy Spirit is God. We tend to think of a ranking structure of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we find that they all equally work together as part of the Trinity or the Godhead. And he is equally God as is the Son, Jesus, and as is the Father. As a matter of fact, Peter um, is addressing Ananias after he has withheld some money that was supposed to be given. And Peter says to him in Acts 5, uh, verse numbers 3 and 4, he says, Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And so we see that Peter clearly says the Holy Spirit is God. He says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he closes it off and says, you didn't lie to humans, you lied to God. And so we know the Holy Spirit is God. We know that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. David writes about this in Psalms 139. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. And so we see the omnipresent um, nature of the Holy Spirit. You may not know this, but the Holy Spirit was present at creation. And we know this from the account of creation. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning, God, and if, we knew, if you were to read that in the original language, it would be a plural word. It would say God's, although we understand it to be the, the Trinity. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the earth. And catch the next part. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's the Holy Spirit. He was hovering over the waters. He was there at creation. And as he was hovering over the waters, this picture that we get is as a bird who's perched on a branch overlooking whatever he's at. We have this as he's overlooking this formless, this void, dark place. And his role in the process of creation was to breathe life into this new place. It's funny because when we look at his current role, he still serves the same purpose in a void and formless soul. He breathes light and brings uh, new life to it. So the function of him at creation was to breathe life and create new life. But the Holy Spirit was there in creation. And the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament, even though we don't read about him. We have things called theophanies, where God makes a physical appearance in the, uh, in the Bible. We also have Christophanies, which is where Jesus makes a physical appearance in the Old Testament. Um, a great example of that is when Jesus is wrestling with what we read to be an angel. We know that to be a Christophany. That's Jesus himself that Jacob is wrestling with. Where we struggle sometimes is to see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He's clear after the four Gospels. We can clearly see the, whole, the Holy Spirit, but we don't necessarily see Him in the, in the Old Testament. But He's clearly there. I just want to give you a few examples. Um, Genesis 41, 38. So Pharaoh asked them, this is about Joseph, Can we find anyone like this man, one whom is the Spirit of God? And so they're saying the Holy Spirit lives in him. Can we find anybody like him, Zechariah 4, 6 says, And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And then Judges 13, 24-25 is fixing to talk about the birth of Samson. And it says, A woman gave birth to a boy named Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Maniadan between Zorah and Estal. And so we see clearly in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit was present. He was the one that was uh, anointing those Old Testament men and women. He was the one who was working on behalf of the Father, executing the plans that he had. And so we see. So we know the Holy Spirit, he was present at creation and in the Old Testament. But the question about who he is comes down to his function. What's the function of the Holy Spirit? First and foremost, his role is to bring life to a formless and dark soul, um, just as he did at creation. But I think the greatest example of his role is illustrated in a Jewish wedding. I'm going to tell you about it, how a Jewish wedding would work. I may have done this before because a Jewish wedding is also a great picture of the second coming of Christ. Um, but I'll tell it to you this time where it'll focus a little more on some of the other details. In, in a Jewish time, if we were to live in that, that time period, if I decided I wanted to marry my wife, uh, one of two things would happen. First, it would be that maybe we fell in love, and that's why we decided to get married. Or maybe it was a family thing, and I decided that I wanted to essentially buy my wife from her family. Now, understand this. It wasn't I could buy her, and if she didn't agree with it, I still got her. There had to be some agreement there. So they would enter into a contract. We would know this as an engagement period. They would call it a betrothal period. But regardless, they would enter into this thing. And so here's the thing that illustrates the Holy Spirit the greatest. The groom, the, the soon coming groom, the fiance, 
when he, just, he and his wife entered into this contract that they were going to get married, he would immediately leave her. And he would go to his father's house and he would begin to add on to his father's house where they would live once they get married. But he would not leave her alone, especially if he had wealth. He would leave behind one of his servants. And you're probably thinking, well, what's the purpose of the servant? It's the same function the Holy Spirit fills today. The servant would stay behind. And whenever the fiancé would get kind of discouraged because she was worried that he wasn't coming back, it was the servant he left behind that would say, no, hold on, he'll be back. He promised he's coming back. He's coming back. And, and whenever the fiancé, she was feeling discouraged and she was feeling like she was all alone, he would go, no, do you remember that time when you and him went on this special time together? Do you remember that time? And there would be times along the way he would shower her with gifts on behalf of the coming groom. And he would do this, and the whole purpose of the servant was to bring glory to the soon-coming bridegroom. Now, when the groom decided it was time, the house was completed, his father would look at it and go, all right, everything's ready. They would sound a horn, and the groom would come unexpectedly at any moment and grab her and bring her back. And so the servant he left behind's whole purpose was to keep her prepared for that time that he was going to come when she didn't expect when it was going to happen. And he would show up, and that's the picture we have of the rapture of, of Christ coming back for us. And we're to be ready at all times. We would have that. Another really beautiful picture of it is found in the story of Isaac and Rebekah. If you remember, Abraham, had a, Abraham was on his deathbed. He was, he was ready to, to pass away. He was not mobile like he used to be. And he, and he put in charge Eleazar, one of his chief servants. And he said, what I need you to do is you have to go out and you have to find the perfect girl for Isaac. It can't be a, a Philistine woman. It has to be someone that comes from a good family. You have to find this person. And, and, and we see that picture of, of him as being the picture of the Holy Spirit. That the Father sends him to draw to him uh, his, his, his bride. And so we see this picture of this of the Holy Spirit. And so he's the one that reminds us that our groom is coming back. How many times have you had a bad day and you go, God, I feel like you don't even listen to me. And maybe some thought pops in your head about the time that God delivered you from something that you thought nobody else could understand. And he did. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He is there to remind us that Christ is coming back for us. Don't lose hope. Don't get discouraged. He's coming back for us. He encourages us when we're disobedient. He's the one that draws us back. Um, it's he who does all those things. Another important role that the Holy Spirit has outside of reminding us and encouraging us and drawing us is that he intercedes for us on our behalf. Paul says in Romans eight twenty six through 27 in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through our wordless groans. And He who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so the Holy Spirit, who knows us better than we know ourselves, in those moments that we're so broken and we don't even know what to cry out to God, is He who cries out through us and intercedes on behalf of us directly to the Father to let him know that he's broken on the inside. He doesn't even know he's broken. He's struggling with this. He's going through this. I'm here because I intimately know the insides of who he is and he needs help and I'm asking Father for you to help him. He serves an important role there. He is keeping us 
until the day our groom arrives to take us home. Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 16 and 26, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus says, I'm not leaving you or you'll just forget all about me. I'm going to leave an advocate with you and he's going to remind you of all the good things that have been done. And then in 1526 of John, Jesus goes on to say, And when the Advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. It is he on the inside of us who testifies of Christ, not only in our lives inwardly, but also through us outwardly. So simply put, the Holy Spirit is to give life to the formless soul and sustain us until we're reunited with our Savior. That's the simple definition of what the Holy Spirit does. He breathes life into us, so he's drawing us, he's doing those things. And then once we come to Christ, it's he who sustains us until we're reunited with Christ. Second question. This is a big one. You probably ask it maybe internally but not publicly. Um, What happens when we die? It's a big question, right? There's kind of three beliefs here. Uh, One is that when you die... You essentially just no longer exist. That, that's it. You close your eyes and death and that's it. You disappear. Um, number two is that when you die, you go to a holding place like, like a purgatory until you get things right. Once you get things right, you can go to your final destination. And then three is that when you die, you are instantly taken to your permanent place. And so there's kind of three thoughts. This is when you die, what happens? So I'm going to give you the answer. Um, when you die, your soul goes to its final destination, whether that be heaven or whether that be hell. The moment you close your eyes on this earth, your soul opens its eyes in your final destination. So when we die, our physical body goes into the ground, but our soul goes to its eternal home. Now, we're able to gather from reading the book of Revelation, and if you were part of that study, you know that we got this great picture of what our future heaven and future hell look like. But we don't really adequately know what they look like today we don't have a great depiction of what they are Um, we do know uh, that these are not put into place until everything is played out and so uh, the new heaven new earth the final hell those things don't come about until the rapture has happened seven years of tribulation a thousand year millennial reign satan is loose one more time at the conclusion of him being loose for that final season It's whenever the final hell comes about, the final heaven comes about. The things we read about, the streets of gold, those are the things that are in the final heaven. Right now, we don't know what the current heaven looks like. But we can try to draw a picture of what we think it'll look like. Um, So the last two chapters, they give us this beautiful, uncomprehendable description of what the final heaven will look like. And and that is the one that Jesus is preparing for us now, right? Going back to the Jewish wedding, when Jesus left this earth, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. When he went to prepare that place, this is what it is in Revelation that we read about. But there's this story that we read about the, uh, a rich man and Lazarus. I believe this in like Luke 15. I could be wrong, but it's, it's somewhere in, in that vicinity. Uh, it is not a parable. It's a true story. And so this rich man, if you're familiar with it, he begins to beg Lazarus who has died. The rich man had Lazarus kind of getting the crumbs off of his table. And they both end up dying. 
And the rich man is looking at Lazarus in, in, in eternity. He's looking at him and he's saying, can you just dip your finger in water and touch my tongue? And so we know there's a torment aspect currently to what we know hell to be. Hell today, we would call it, in the Hebrew, we would call it Sheol. In the Greek, we understand it to be Hades. We know that it's a place that's in the center of the earth. That's clear. The Bible describes to us where it currently is. It's in the center of the earth. That's where Hades is. Uh, There's another one, not to throw away out there, but there's another one we call Tartarus. And this is where um, the bottomless pit. That's what this is. It's where the fallen angels are kept that are released uh, in the book of Revelation. So you have these two things. But where people go when they die, if they're not Christians, they go currently to a place called Hades. We know there's some torture element there because the rich man who is experiencing it just asks for the the water to be on the tip of his tongue. He's so tormented. We also know that the greatest torment that will ever be experienced through this is actually the separation from God. It has nothing to do with the physical things. It is the emotional separation from God for all of eternity. And so uh, during the rapture, we find that our physical bodies rise from the graves and they unite with our souls and God gives us a glorified body. So if I were to die today, my soul would immediately be in heaven. My body in a few days will be put in the ground. Then the rapture happens. And we know Paul describes this. He says, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. You're probably thinking, wait, does my soul come from heaven back to my body and then rise again? No, my physical body comes up out of the grave and unites with my soul in heaven. And in that moment, God gives me a glorified body. It's an amazing thing. It's what we all want, right? We want a glorified body. Now, those who have died in their sins, they do get resurrected, but not at this time. As a matter of fact, I'll read it to you. But they only are, they come up out of their grave for what we call the great white throne judgment, which happens at the very end of Revelation. And so they, as, Paul, as John writes right here, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, and this is the Father that sits on the great white throne, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So you see what I'm saying here? So first we say the sea gives it up. We would understand and say that the earth essentially gives up their bodies. And then we find that Hades, which is where they would be if they're separated in their sins, Hades gives up essentially their soul. And they're reunited with their bodies. They're not getting a glorified body. They're going to stand before God to be judged at the great white throne judgment. Um, And they gave up them, and they were judged, and each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final hell. We call it Gehenna. They were thrown into the final hell. And in the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So once we die, Our soul is immediately taken to our eternal home. And our bodies are awaiting either the rapture for a Christian or the great white throne judgment, those who are separated from God for their sins. So when we die, that's what happens. 
That's why Paul gives this beautiful depiction of it in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He talks about that when he's absent from being home in his body, he's present physically with God. But if he's present in his body, he's absent from being in the presence of God. That's why he had such a struggle. That's why Paul wanted to die, but he wanted to live. He, he wanted to die because he wanted to be in the presence of God because he couldn't be in the presence of God currently. But he wanted to live because he wanted to make sure as many people as possible could be in the presence of God one day. And so that's what happens. So it leads me to kind of a follow-up. This will be my third question, but it kind of uh, goes hand-in-hand hand with this one. Um, what about saints that died before Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? There were millions of people that died before Jesus ever did his redemptive work on the cross. Now, Jesus himself said to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's what he says is how we get to heaven. So then we have to ask the question, those who died before him, where did they go? They weren't tormented. They weren't stuck in the grave. What happened? So we go back to the story of the rich man of Lazarus. And we find that there's a place called Abraham's bosom. Do you remember that? It talks about the, the rich man went to, he essentially went to hell, went to Hades, Sheol. And then we find that the, the Lazarus, who was a beggar on earth, went to what they called paradise or Abraham's bosom. And so to help you understand what that was, in the center of the earth is where both of those were located. And what I believe was probably happening and how uh, there could be communication somewhat between this rich man and Lazarus was that they were side by side. And essentially in Sheol, you had the good, the righteous, and then those who weren't. Now, Abraham's bosom simply means a place of comfort, right? Think about how its description is and think about what that is. When you were growing up or even now, when someone grabs you and pulls you into their chest, that's a comforting thing. And so the description of it is Father Abraham, who all of them believe to be the father of the Jews, his bosom, comforting place. And so they thought, this is a comforting place for Jews. And it was. It was a place of waiting. They were waiting for Christ to do his redemptive work. If you think the people living on earth were anticipating Christ anxiously, imagine the people in paradise. Like, oh man, he's got to come on. We're ready. Because they could not be in the presence of God until they had been cleansed from the blood of, by the blood of Christ. At the time, they had a sacrificial system in place. An animal's blood would cover their sins. But it wasn't good enough to cover it, but the sins that they had done. It wouldn't cover things in the future. And so it was not perfect enough of a sacrifice for an unrighteous person. The only way a righteous person could ever stand before a righteous God, I mean an unrighteous person could stand before an unrighteous, an unrighteous person could stand before a righteous God, would be that a righteous person had to die for their sins. And that's where Jesus came. Jesus came and he died for our sins, right? As Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He died for us so that we could then become righteous. And the moment Jesus died on a cross, this is what we know happened. All those people who were in Abraham's bosom, the moment Jesus died on the cross, instantly their souls went to heaven. 
which is beyond the sky and the atmosphere. We know that because Paul describes going there and he calls it the third heaven. And the reason he calls it the third heaven is because our first heaven is the atmosphere on our earth. The next heaven is the galaxy. And he says even beyond that, the third heaven is where he encountered God. And so the moment that that happened, all those people were released from Abraham's bosom and they went all the way from the center of the earth all the way to the third heaven, to be in the presence of God. They finally were able to be cleansed and be in front of God. And it's an amazing thing. So when we die, what happens? Our soul instantly goes to our eternal home, whether that be heaven or hell. Our bodies are joined with our souls. If we're a Christian at rapture, if we are not a Christian at the great white throne judgment. And that's when we're given our final judgment. Those who died before all that were in a place called Abraham's bosom. It was paradise. They were waiting. They weren't in the presence of God yet. They were waiting for Jesus to do his work. When Jesus died on the cross, when he said, it is finished, his blood in that moment covered their sins. And they instantly went to heaven. And you go, well, why did Jesus have to rise again? Because in his death, he con- I mean, excuse me, in his resurrection, he conquered death. So now no longer does sin have a hold on my life. Now death no longer has a hold on my life. Now, once I die... It doesn't control me. It doesn't send me to some waiting place for Jesus to do a work. He's already conquered that. Now whenever I die, I immediately go into the presence of God. So that's how that all unfolds. And then let me get to this final one. The fourth question is, is, are there errors in the Bible? Now I will tell you one of my most frustrating things is when somebody comes up to me and they go, I just cannot believe in God because I found an error in the Bible. And you go, well, what is it? And they'll give you some crazy thing. You're like, really, that's going to be the thing that keeps you. If somebody sincerely struggles with it, I'm more than happy to talk through it with them. If somebody's using it as an excuse to say, I don't, even, I don't want anything to do with God anymore. I've got to find a reason. I want God to be the bad guy and I'll be the victim. Oh, well, I can't believe in God. This thing isn't even accurate. That's why I have a problem. So I just want to help you understand better if somebody comes to you and they say, the Bible has errors in it, that's why I'm not a Christian. I want you to be able to tell them uh, an answer that will help them if they truly want some help. First, to understand this, that an error means that there's no answer to the problem. Okay? Now, it's a misunderstanding if there's an answer to the problem. What you're going to find is people don't actually discover errors in the Bible They have misunderstandings in the Bible because we can give an answer to anything. Every error that someone has ever found has been rebuttaled with an answer. So there's no errors in the Bible. There's misunderstandings. You also have to remember that the Bible was composed by 40 different men over 1,500 years on three different continents, each one of them writing from their own perspective, their own desires, to their own audiences, under under their own circumstances. And so if you can imagine if all of us began to write something, there would be a hard time for us to have harmony together because we're all going to write from our perspective, our own circumstances, and understanding. Um, So understand that. But trying to translate the Bible, understanding that it was written in three different languages, understanding that not only were there three different languages, but there were different tones and and different attitudes and and different kind of the the structure of it, understanding all that. That makes it hard to translate into our language when it's not our language. And so, understand that. So, there is human error, but that does not mean that the Bible contradicts itself or that it has problems. Most of the perceived errors come from one of these realities, okay? If if you were taking notes, these are some good things to write down. Um, 
The first reality is people are trying to explain the unexplainable. You're going to find problems if you try to explain something that can't be explained. We found that when we studied the book of John. John will be writing about a nuclear attack and you're reading it going, that sounds crazy. And then you realize he's trying to explain something that he doesn't understand, nor does anybody else. When you try to explain the unexplainable, there's going to be errors. Uh, Assuming that the Bible is full of errors unless proven innocent. And so people come into arguments with presuppositions. I believe the Bible is this. And so if people come in and they think that the Bible is full of errors until it proves itself is not, they're going to have some problems. Um, confusing fallible interpretation with God's infallible revelation. So we know the Bible is the infallible word of God, meaning that it is without error. We also know that we're humans and we're full of errors. If I interpret an infallible word through a fallible person, there's going to be errors in my interpretation. Uh, We forget that the Bible has human characteristics, meaning that there's humans writing it. There's humans Uh, translating it. And so we have to leave room for their errors, not God's errors. We have to assume a partial report is not a false report. I'm going to give you some examples here. Uh, In Matthew, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the statement. Mark records it, and Mark writes the first gospel. Mark records Jesus, um, excuse me, Peter is saying, you are the Christ. So he Leave some of it off. Luke records it, who was friends with Peter. Luke records the Christ of God is what Peter confesses. Just because there's a partial report doesn't mean that it's a false report. Just because the other two didn't record it the way that Matthew did doesn't mean that they are now wrong and Matthew's right or Matthew's right and they're wrong. It just means that they each recorded it differently because of the circumstances they were facing or the audience they were writing. Matthew had to record it that way because he was writing to a Jewish audience. So he needed to say, you are the Christ, a very definite statement, the son of the living God, which no one dared to utter. So that's why. Um, Another reality is assuming the New Testament citations of the Old Testament must be verbatim. How many times have you read what somebody in the New Testament was referencing back to a verse and they didn't quote it word for word. Listen, Paul is not going to quote a book, he's not going to quote David in Psalms as a King James language because he didn't write in a King James language. He wrote in a different language than even what David wrote in. And so there's going to be times they don't quote it verbatim. Um, Assuming divergent accounts are false. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, Because two or more accounts of the same event differ does not mean that they are mutually exclusive. Matthew 28.5 says there was one angel at the tomb of the resurrection. Whereas John informs us in chapter 20 verses 12 that there were two angels. Now if I wanted to find problems with this, I would go, obviously this contradicts itself. One says this, they were both there. What, What is the issue here? But these aren't contradictory reports. An infallible mathematical rule easily explains this problem. Where there are two, there's always one. Matthew did not say there was only one angel. He just said there was one angel. There could have easily have been two. Matter of fact, him and John could have saw 20 angels. They were just trying for their readers to help them understand there was an angel there. And so just because somebody says it like that doesn't doesn't mean that it contradicts itself. And then I want to close with this. 
These are the this is some wise words from Saint Augustine, um, not the city, the actual Christian. Um, if we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either one, the manuscript is faulty, or two, the translation is wrong, or three, you have not understood. If somebody comes to you and they say the Bible is full of errors, you go, hold up right there. Either your translation is full of errors, the manuscripts that they copied from are full of errors, or you're just not understanding. The Bible original text for most of the books does not exist. All we have are copies uh, of that people did. There is no doubt that there could be errors. But if we were to go to the original text, we would find that God breathed an infallible word into those men who wrote those books. Now, over the years in translation, there's sure there could be errors, but there's not errors in an infallible God's word. Okay? All right. Let me, let me close with prayer, and then we'll be dismissed to go to the back and eat. God, we're so thankful for who you are. Lord, that you love us, that you care for us. Uh, God, we're so thankful that you provide the answer to our questions. Uh, for the Holy Spirit who convicts us and challenges us and, and draws us and, and reminds us of how good you are. We're so thankful for his presence in our life. God, help us in our weaknesses to remember how good you are. Help us in our struggles to fall back to obedience. Help us in our failures to be drawn back to you. And I pray as we are trying to digest things, Lord, and we encounter people that we will be able to give an adequate answer, um, defending you and all that you've done. God, this time together is, is not about displaying that we're right and everybody else is wrong. It's just to help us all understand how we should interact with people when they ask tough questions. So, Lord, help us in that journey. Help each and every person here. God, as we get ready to leave this place in this moment, Lord, I ask that you bless our fellowship in the back. Bless the food. God, we thank you for all that you've done. God, I know personally, Amber and I are so thankful for each and every person here. God, that they've loved us in unlovable moments. They've embraced us in our brokenness. They've cared for us, Lord, when we felt all alone. And we're so thankful that you bless us with such a beautiful church. Help us to continue to lead it according to your will. Help us, God, as we move forward in this week to be shining examples of what hope looks like in a risen Savior. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Kim.